right, good morning. Oh, good, lively crowd. Good to see you guys this morning. Hey, before we start, um, there was a card on your seat when you came in. If you want to pick that up and you can reference it along the way. Uh, there was a, a card on your seat that talks about kids camp. And no, this is not a camp where we all become kids and dance around in here and fun. Uh, we actually have a camp that we throw every summer here at our church, and it is for elementary age kids. And so if you are a parent of elementary age kids, maybe they're back checked in across Point Kids right now, uh, we would love to invite you uh, to, to get them registered for that. The reason those cards are in your chair is because that registration opened up today. And so if you want to go ahead and jump on that, it's coming up in June. And uh, if you talk to anyone around here who's been a part of that before, it's an incredible, incredible event. So make sure you sign them up for that. All the details are on that card. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles with you today, go ahead and take them out. We're going to be in Genesis chapter uh, 25 together. And so if you want to go ahead and kind of jump to that, you can do that. While you turn there, I'll go ahead and get us started. Uh, Last week, I was invited out to speak at a panel with a group uh, or for a group of high school students. And, And the panel that I was speaking on, there was really kind of one big topic. And then the students would submit questions that they kind of had about the topic. So the, the topic that was uh, given for this panel was on the reliability of the Bible. The reliability of the Bible. How can, how can we trust the Bible as God's word? All, all those kinds of things. And so the students begin to submit questions. And anytime, if you've ever done something like that or any kind of panel discussion like that, what you'll notice is oftentimes there is this kind of common question that will come up in, a, in, a, in multiple different ways. And, and that was definitely the case last week. And, and it was one of those questions that in the aftermath of speaking at that, I thought about it more and more because I thought that this is actually a really relevant question for you and I as we're going through the book of Genesis together. And here was the question that came up. Uh, the, The main question that kept getting asked time and time again was, why is God different from the Old Testament to the New Testament? And it took on a few different variations of that, but the the big idea was, I think God, we see a picture of God in the Old Testament, and for some reason, I think he's different in the New Testament. Right, so, so why is that? What's going on here? And even I think for some of us, like we have this picture in our head of God in the Old Testament is like always and forever raining down fire from the cosmos. But when we get into the New Testament, what we think of is Jesus for some reason, like carrying around this perfectly manicured lamb, right, in his arms. And that's the difference. It's like, all right, why is he angry there? And then we have Jesus, the great shepherd here. What's going on here? It, it's almost as if we feel that when the Old Testament closes and the New Testament begins, somehow God has changed. And I would bet that for many of you in the room today, you may have that very same question, or at least you have had that question. And maybe you don't have that question, but if you're a Christian in the room, this is a question that you need to be familiar with, because I can almost guarantee you that if you are sharing your faith, that question is going to come up in some way, shape, or form. It will happen. And I want to put forward to you as we start our time today that I actually think that question is is a little bit dangerous of a question. And I want to present that if we believe that, that it is in fact detrimental for us. And there's a few different reasons why. Uh, Number one, that way of thinking that God has changed from Old Testament to New Testament. Number one, the biggest problem with it is it's simply not true. It's simply not true. The Bible is clear that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we're going to see in Genesis chapter 25 this morning, the Bible all the way through from cover to cover is all about God's incredible grace. And number two, the other big problem with that is if we start to see the Old Testament in that lens, um, you and I as 21st century Christians who see ourselves as maybe more enlightened than the rest of human history are going to begin to see the Old Testament as absolutely irrelevant for us here today. 
And then to add and compound onto all of that, if we see the Old Testament in that way, we are going to miss out on the big story that God has been weaving together throughout history. It started in the old, it continued in the new, and God is still working out that story right now in our day today. And so what I want to do today, my goal for us, is that through Genesis chapter 25, again an Old Testament book, I want to present to you the idea that Genesis chapter 25 is a chapter that is all about the incredible mercy and grace and kindness of God. That's the big idea that I want you to take away from. In fact, I'm going to share my kind of main point, the main idea that I want us to all walk out of here today with. And here's the point. We'll put it up for you. I want us to see today that God pours out his grace to an undeserving people for his glory and for our good. If you walk away with nothing else today, I want you to walk away with that, that God is pouring out his grace to a people who are totally undeserving, but he does it for his glory and for our good. And and for some of us, this is going to be really, really good news today. Because I think if we're honest enough with ourselves, I know in a room this size, like some of us should probably barely made it in here today. Right? Some of us are so beat up, we're so tired, we're so exhausted from everything that is going on in your world, everything that's going on in your life. You feel like life kind of has you around the throat. And the thing that we need more than anything this morning is to hear about God pouring out his grace to an undeserving people. It's exactly what we need. We need that message to get into our soul. Like we need to remember that God hasn't abandoned us. We need to remember that God loves us. We need to remember that God is for us because everything else in your world may be screaming otherwise. And some of you today are maybe just exhausted from religious performance, right? Tired of playing the game. I feel like I have nothing anymore. I've been trying so hard to earn my place in the kingdom of God, and for some reason it's not working. I feel like I have no joy or no hope in my life. God, I need something And what you need today is the grace and the mercy of God. And if that is you, Genesis 25 is going to be really, really good news for you today. So with that being said, we're going to jump in. Um, Here's what I know today. There are probably some of you, and I won't ask you to identify yourself. There are probably some of you here that maybe last weekend was your very first weekend coming to Crosspoint. And so you're all excited. It's like, man, awesome. I love church. Man, we're coming back again next week. And then you come back and you learn that we're in a series on Genesis that we've been in for months, right? And you're like, man, I don't even want to read the Old Testament at all. And these dudes are smack in the middle of it. So I'm aware of that today. I'm sure some of you are new. And even for those of you that have been around a little bit, uh, we haven't been in Genesis for a couple of weeks. And so I want to make a little bit of sense of where we've been. What I'm going to do is give you the fastest Genesis recap of all time, at least of the first 24 chapters, right? And, And by fastest is probably going to be one of the least accurate at the same time. So I'm going to do this. If you want to read the whole story, there's 24 chapters of homework for you this week. All right, so here's kind of where we've been so far and the things that I want you to know about as we jump into 25 today. Um, God, when he created the world, he created everything good. And he created human beings in his image, and they were to bear his image rightly in the world. And as we know from Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fell. They rebelled against God. And from that moment, everything changed. But the good news was God didn't abandon his creation because they rebelled against him. God, in fact, purposed a plan to save and redeem his creation. And so we get to Genesis chapter 12, and we see how God is going to kind of unfold this plan throughout history. God calls a man named Abram, later to be known as Abraham. And he calls Abraham, and he makes these absolutely incredible promises to him. And he says that he's going to use this man to bless the world. 
And so God calls Abraham, and, and really from chapters 12 to 24, what we see in the, in the book of Genesis is God sort of unfolding this plan in the life of Abraham. And a couple of weeks ago, we actually met his son Isaac, who was the promised son that God was going to give him. Now, as we turn to chapter 25, after you have just experienced the fastest recap of all time, it was so wonderful, and you all know the book now. Uh, now that we've seen that, we want to turn the page a little bit to chapter 25. And, and our task together today is we're going to be covering the first 26 verses. Uh, we do not have time to read all 26 verses. So what I want to do is in the first part of our time, I want to summarize for you what's going on in verses 1 through 18. If you have your Bible out, it may help you so you can kind of see it unfolding with me. We're not going to put those on the screen. What I've done is I've put together a little summary for you. And so now you have homework this week to go and read the rest of Genesis chapter 25. You can thank me for that on the way out today, all right? So it's interesting, if you, if, you, if you have the Bible open in front of you, what you're going to notice when you get to Genesis 25 is, um, and, and if you've ever done a Bible reading plan, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about right now. I, I love the beginning of the year. We all get excited to read through the Bible in a year, and we think like, man, this is the year I'm actually going to do it. Like, it's going to change this year. I'm going to read the Bible from cover to cover this year. And, and it's in moments like turning to Genesis chapter 25 that you begin to lose a little bit of steam, right? So you have these stories that are taking place like, man, this is really cool. This is awesome. I see this, and I see that. This is, this is great. And then you open up chapter 25 and you get this line of descendants coming from different people, right? And, and if you've read the Bible before in the Old Testament, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All of your sort of good ambitions seem to kind of go out the window once the lineage pops up in the chapter, right? And, and so that's what, that's what kind of happens here. But I want to caution us before we do that, and if anything, I hope this will be helpful for us, that when you come across passages like that, it is significant. Um, God wasn't trying to put you to sleep or give you a nap by putting this in the Word. Uh, these are here for a very particular reason. In fact, when we open up to Genesis 25, what we're actually going to be seeing is the end of Abraham's life. Abraham, the man that we've been following his journey for about 12 chapters, we're going to see his journey come to a close. And I'm going to put a couple of summaries up for you. I mean, verses 1 to 6, um, what you see is you see the line of Abraham and a, a, a woman named Keturah. Abraham, in these verses, he gives his possessions to Isaac, and he gives gifts to his other sons. Now, here's all this is. After Abraham's uh, first wife, Sarah, died, he took another wife, and her name was Keturah. And in these first set of verses, what you see is the lineage and line of Abraham and Keturah. You see the kids that they had together. Now, what I want to show you through this, and this is why this is important, I promise you I'm going somewhere with this. What I want to show you is in these first 18 verses, God is being very um, specific to put these things in the Scripture because what is happening is we are going to see God making sure to show that he has fulfilled promises that he made to Abraham, even up to Abraham's death. Now, if you remember with me, Abraham was made a bunch of promises in chapter 17, God told Abraham that he was going to be the father of many nations. Well, how is Abraham going to be the father of many nations? We know about his son Isaac. We know about his son Ishmael. But who, who are these nations that the Lord is speaking of here? Well, when we get to these verses at the end of Abraham's life, the text is trying to show you and I, by showing us the lineage of Abraham with Keturah, that God is fulfilling the promises to make Abraham the father of many nations. I'll come back to why that's significant. The second chunk of text that we'll cover, overview, uh, verses 7 to 11. In verses 7 to 11, we see the account of Abraham's death and his burial next to his former wife, Sarah. After his death, God then blesses Isaac. 
Now again, why is this significant? Well, in, uh, in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 15, God made this promise to Abraham that he was going to be a man that was going to live a long life, be ripe old age, and full of years when he comes to his death. What's interesting in this portion of the text, the Bible is, tells us, if you go and read it on your own time this week, that when Abraham died, he died a, a man full of ripe old age. He was a man that was full of years. And so again, a promise that God is showing that he kept to Abraham even down to his death. Something that many of us would read in Genesis 15 and kind of look past, but at the end of Abraham's story, what the the text is going to do is show us that, hey, do you remember that promise in Genesis chapter 15? Yes, even God kept that one. He was going to be a man full of years. And then the last one that we'll summarize together, verses 12 to 18. Verses 12 to 18. What we learn here is we learn about the lineage of Abraham's son, Ishmael. Now, if you remember who Ishmael was, this was the son that Abraham had with Hagar, his servant, when he grew impatient waiting on the promises of God. And it's interesting that at the end of Abraham's story, the text turns for just a few minutes and actually shows Ishmael's descendants. Now, why is that? Why, why would the text make a point to do that? Again, this is the part where you probably start to fall asleep and think, why is this here? Well, Genesis chapter 16, God made a promise that he was going to turn Ishmael into a great nation. And so again, here we are at the end of Abraham's story, and we see another promise being fulfilled by God. Now, you're probably asking, you said, Zach, you were going somewhere. Where are you going with this? Here's what I want you to see through this. I want you to see this very clear point. I want you to see that God gives us grace to the very end. God gives us grace to the very end. here's Here's what I want you to see from Abraham's journey so far. As we come to the end of Abraham's life, we know that this was a man who had his issues along the way, right? If you've been here throughout this series so far, you know that Abraham, he took Ishmael, or I'm sorry, he took Hagar, his servant, who would be the mother to, to Ishmael, and we know that he grew impatient on the promises of God and he took things into his own hands. And then even after that, we know that Abraham twice, and married people, try to imagine this, all right, twice Abraham tried to uh, say that Sarah, his wife, was his sister so that other people wouldn't want to get with her. Imagine doing that to your spouse twice. Say, no, baby, just tell him you're my sister. Well, the Lord got onto us the first time. I know, do it again. We're not going to get in trouble this time. All right, that's, what he's, that's what he's done, and he's done it twice. And I think it's fascinating to think as we come to the end of Abraham's journey, this same Abraham who is kind of stumbling to the end of his life with with sort of scraped knees and and bruises all over him because he's just had a little bit of a rough journey at different points. What we see when we come to the, the end of his story is that God has left no promise unfulfilled to him. That God was with him even down to the very last moment. And what I want to present to you today is that that same grace that was poured out to Abraham down to the very end of his life is the very same grace that is going to be with you and is going to be with me down to the very end of our lives. That God all the way down into the end of your story is going to be faithful to be with you. And hear me, there is nothing that can separate his love and his grace from you and your life. There are not enough mistakes, there are not enough uh, mess-ups, there are not enough slip-ups for God to look at you and say, guess what, I can't use you anymore. Right? So what we see in Abraham's journey is exactly that, because I think there are some of us today that walk in the room and we think, man, surely God is kind of getting done with me. 
Like he keeps giving me grace and he keeps loving me and he keeps extending mercy to me and I keep saying I'm not going to do it again but the problem is I continue to do it again and so I, I think he's maybe just going to wash his hands and be, be clean of me because I just can't figure it out. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is never going to give up on you. And the same good news that we see embraced into Abraham's life is the same good news for you today. And here, I think it's even important to think about this. Um, let, me, let me think of the, the best, this isn't the best way to say it, but I'm going to try. Um, those of you in the room who are, who are maybe a little bit older, right? That's a nice way to start. Maybe the finish line is a little closer than the beginning for you, right? All right? You know, and you know who you are. So, <laughs> I'm just messing. I know, I'm still a little young. Um, okay, so, so, you, so you're getting towards the end of your life, or, or maybe the back half of your career, retirement's ahead, or uh, whatever, whatever it is for you. I think sometimes we, and I've met these people, I know we even wonder, can God even use me at this point in my life? Like surely God would rather just get a young buck in here to do something else and and be done with me. The good news for you though is that if what's true about Abraham is true for us, then God is never going to be through with you. That all the way down until you breathe your last, God is chiseling away at you. He is using you. Your sanctification didn't end 20 years ago. He is working on you even to this very moment. He will never be through with you. And that's the hope that you and I have as sons and daughters of the king today. That he is never going to be done with us. He is never tired of us. And he is never going to quit working on us. All right, we're going to pick up again in Genesis chapter 25. We're actually going to read the text this time and not summarize. So if you have your Bibles out, we're going to continue the story in verse 19 together. Verse 19 to 21 says this, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Make sure and note that. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So where we pick up the story again, remember the first part of 25, Abraham is dead, he's gone, his story's coming to a close. The Bible's at least putting an end to his story. And then the story is now going to shift to focus on Isaac. This is, again, the promised son that God gave to Abraham. As the story turns to Isaac, we learn a couple of things about Isaac within this text. Number one, we learn that he was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, his wife. And then number two, and this is something I want you to note, that we learn that Rebekah, his wife, remember this was the same wife that God had sovereignly brought into his life, that very wife was barren. Now, what does this mean? This puts us in a little bit of an interesting situation for Isaac. Again, the promises of God that were made to Abraham were now going to continue through Isaac and through his lineage. But the problem is when we open up to the text in verse 19 and we learn about the generations of Isaac, we learn that at this point there were no generations of Isaac. Why is that? Because his wife was barren. And so again, we sit in this moment where the promises of God seem to be a little bit in in threat or in limbo because Isaac doesn't have any kids. And so how is God going to fulfill the promises that were made to him? They're going to want to draw you back to remember something about, about Isaac's old man, Isaac's old man Abraham. You remember Abraham was in a very similar situation. Remember that Abraham, when God made these incredible promises to him, Abraham was getting older in age and didn't have any kids. 
Now, I want to ask you, have you ever had one of those moments in your life when one of your parents said to you, you are going to wish you would have learned from me one day and listened to me? Have you ever had one of those moments before, like your mom or your dad said to you, or maybe a parent in the room, you said to your kids, like, hey, I know you don't understand this right now, but one day you're going to wish that you would have been quiet enough to learn from me and listen to me, right? Uh, that phrase has haunted me for the majority of my adult life, and here, here's why. Uh, my dad is incredibly handy. He can fix anything. He can do anything. That's kind of one of those things where, like, I would, I, we would be on the plane. I would say, dude, my dad could take your dad. My dad's better than your dad. Like, he can do it all, right? Dad can do everything. And I remember being a kid, and I remember dad, dad would be building who knows what, be fixing who knows what, whatever was going on. And, and he would say to me, hey, son, you want to come learn this with me? And uh, I, honestly, zero interest whatsoever. And so sometimes I would appease him and stand there for a few minutes, and I would I'd probably be so annoying enough that he'd just say, dude, just go back and do whatever you were doing. I didn't learn anything from him, all right? And so this happens throughout my life. Well, I become an adult years later, and I end up buying, my wife and I bought our first home years ago, and that phrase, I wish, you, you, you were going to wish you would have learned from me, started to haunt me. And here's why. Because when you have a home and stuff breaks, guess what? You got to fix it. And, and guess what? If you don't know how to fix it, what do you have to do? You have to pay someone to fix it, right? And when you don't have money to pay someone to fix it, what happens? You sit there with broken stuff all the time, right? And so then, then you do the phone call thing where you call your parent back and it's like, hey, do you remember that conversation we had like two decades ago? Hey, I love you. You were right. Will you please come and save me right now? Come and help me. I need help. Right, that would kind of happen. If you took whatever handy is, I am just the opposite of that. I don't even know the word for it. I can't fix anything. But that was kind of my moment for me, and I'm sure you had one for you. I would imagine that there were moments like that in the household for Abraham and Isaac throughout Isaac's childhood. And I would imagine that Isaac was a little bit smarter than most of us, and he actually learned from his old man. And here's why I say that. Again, Isaac faced the same situation that his dad did. Remember his dad, whenever the promise of God was somewhat in jeopardy, there was no kid. What did he do? He started to take things into his own hands. Sleeps with a servant, has Ishmael, and God said, no, 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 you should have trusted in me, not taken things into your own hands. And here Isaac, we come to his story, and he's facing the very same thing. The promises are there waiting for him, but my wife is barren, what am I going to do with this? And Isaac, instead of turning to his own intuition, instead of uh, being like uh, you and I most of the time, where we say, you know what, God, I think I can fix this. I think I can handle this. I think I can do this. Let me try to take this into my own strength. Instead of doing that, the text tells us that in response to the barrenness of Rebekah, Isaac simply prays to the Lord. He goes to the Lord and he says, I need help. I need grace. I need your mercy. We're at this crossroad where we can't really do anything about it. God, we need you to see us through if this is actually going to happen. And it's at this moment that we see the grace of God breaking through into the life of Isaac. Here's the point that I want you to see from all of that. I want you to see this, that God gives us grace through our trials. God gives us grace through our trials. In this trial moment for Isaac where he knew that no one aside from the Lord could help him, according to the text, where is the first place he turns? He turns to the Lord. And I think that it's here in this moment of watching Isaac go from an impossible situation that he can't conquer to turning his eyes to the Lord is exactly where you and I need to see God's grace that is available to us in the trials that are going to come your way. 
And hear me, I say the trials that are going to come your way because just because you are a Christian does not mean you escape the trials that are going to come. It's a matter of how prepared we are for it. And so in this moment, we can look at Isaac's story and know that, okay, that is the type of response that I need to see come to fruition in my life. So what I think is interesting about Isaac is that we know, and this is fascinating when I saw this in the text this week, we know that God made these promises to Isaac. We know that the story was going to continue through him, yet he doesn't have any kids. Now, but what else we know, because we saw it in the first part of our text, is that Ishmael, his half-brother, guess who has a whole lineage? Ishmael's got a whole bunch of kids. And I think the temptation would rise in a moment like that, and you and I have probably faced the same temptation to look across the way and say, God, why is this, why are you giving them this, but you're not helping me here? Or like, God, why has this suffering made its way into my life when I know I'm at least better than that person over there? Like, I may not be better than a lot of people, but I'm at least better than them. And so shouldn't they have to face this instead of me? And see, when I think we think about things like that, what happens is we forget what God wants to do in and through your life through the trials that are coming your way. See, if Romans chapter 8 is true, that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purposes, that means that all things, even the trials you face, are going to be for your good. And I want you to take confidence today that anything that comes in and through your life will never be wasted if you are a child of God. I mean, I think that gives us some confidence to kind of walk in. Right? Like, not in our own strength, not in our own merit, not in our own sufficiency, but to think that, man, like, our God can actually take these things that seem terrible and, and, and actually turn that around for my good. Like, He will actually change me and grow me and transform me into the man or woman that He wants me to be because of what I'm facing. Like, praise God for that type of grace in our lives. God will never abandon you in any trial that you may face. And even as I think about this story I thought about even people in our church that I've sat with through the years that I know there are many of you, maybe even in this room, that have struggled and struggled and struggled with infertility. Man, it's been one of those battles that you feel like you just can't fight anymore. It's going to break you. There are other people in this room, and maybe you've been sick for a really long time. And you just wonder when, maybe when you'll have peace again. Maybe others of you have been going through, I mean, you want God to heal your marriage so desperately, but for some reason it's just not actually happening, and you're sitting there wondering, like, God, I am giving everything I have. And then for others of us, I think maybe you're at the point where it's like, man, I'm at the end of my rope. Life has me by the throat, and I am ready to call it quits. I think what we can walk in with a little bit of confidence in today is that no matter what you're facing, no matter if you are facing infertility, sickness, disease, struggle, strife, whatever trial it is that you're facing, God is with you in your storm. And he's never going to leave you. There is nothing you can do that he will ever leave you. If you are a child of God, he is with you in every single moment, and none of it will go unwasted. Let's pick back up in our text again as we finish out our story for this morning. I pick back up in Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 22. 22 to 26 says this, The children struggled together within her, and she said, again, this is Rebecca here, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. 
Now when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and so they called him Esau. What a beautiful baby he must have been. (laughs) And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Here's the reality. My, my wife and I just had our first child six weeks ago, right? And it was beautiful, awesome, and we're so, so excited, all this stuff. But deep down, parents in the room, you know this. Deep down, there is that legitimate fear within you that it's like, man, what if my baby is ugly, right? <laughs> and there's some of you laughing because it's like, crap, I did that, right? So you have that fear a little bit. Now, luckily, my daughter is beautiful, and she's awesome. But, man, what, like, what if you get the red cloak body kid coming out? Like, <laughs> it's this, the face only a mother could love, I think, is how it goes. So that's bes- totally besides the point. All right, so uh, before, we, before we dig in too far, I want you to just kind of see what just happened in that story beside a hairy red baby coming out. So uh, what's going on here is, again, we've just come off the heels of Isaac and Rebecca. They, they're barren, and they go and seek the Lord, and they pray. And it's amazing. God hears their prayers, right? They, they call out to the Lord. They cry to him, and God answers their prayer. And like, uh, like he will do, sometimes a little too much, he answered their prayer kind of double, right? So instead of one kid, they get two. Right? And I think she's probably thinking, like, I got a little bit more than I bargained for. It's quite the answered prayer. And so she finds out that there are, there are two children there in her stomach. And the text tells us that the children, they struggled within her womb. Now, my wife just gave birth to a 6-pound, 10-ounce baby girl. So she's beautiful, but she was, I mean, as hard as childbirth was, she wasn't no, like, 10-pounder, right? Now, think about this. Think about Rebecca's struggle in this text. I said, it says the children struggled within her. That word for struggle doesn't just mean like they were kind of like slapping hands in the womb. The word in the Hebrew actually means that they were warring against one another. There was like this confrontation going on within her. And so it's like these two boys are going like full WWE within her stomach right now. Right, that's what she's, she's facing. And so in response to that, she's thinking like, God, what is going on here? So she goes to inquire of the Lord. And she wants to know, and, and I love it, you could, this poor, poor mother suffering. She says, why is this happening to me? And God answers back, and it's incredibly significant. He tells her two very important theological things that we need to take away from what is going on in her womb. Um, Number one, he says that there are two nations within her. There are two nations within her. Um, What what the Bible means when it says two nations are within her is there are going to be two sons in the womb there, Esau and Jacob. And what we'll come to know later is that each of those sons are going to become two nations. And so Esau is going to become the nation of Edom, And then uh, Jacob was going to become the nation of Israel. Now what you should know is the conflict that they were having within the womb uh, wasn't just like a a little bit of heartburn and a bad day in pregnancy. This is actually foreshadowing something that was going to be true of these two nations for a long time to come. In fact, when you get through the scriptures, you're going to learn that the people of Edom were not big fans of the people of Israel. And there was going to be this battle between the two for years to come. And so that's the first thing. There are two nations within her, two nations that will be divided. Now, the second thing I want you to see about this text is the nature in which grace is going to be dispensed to these two kids. All right, so the text tells us that, um, that, that actually the, the older son is going to serve the younger. And it's an interesting thing for the Bible to point out here. Because it's not as if God is leaving this up for debate to say, you know what, um, Rebecca, we're going to see which two of your sons is most promising, right? The hairy one or the heel grabber. We're going to see which one has more potential, and then we're going to see which one is going to serve who. 
See, in this day and age, the older, uh, the older male would be the, kind of the main inheritor of the promises and the inheritance of the family. And we know for this family, that's a really big deal. Well, the older son in this case was Esau. And so you would expect the older son to receive the inheritance, but God says with these two sons, what he's actually going to do is he's going to use uh, the younger, that the older Esau is going to serve the younger Jacob. Now you may be thinking, Zach, what in the world does that mean? Why does that have any significance? What does that matter that God determined that in advance? Well, here's what I want you to see about this. I want you to see from that idea that God gives grace to those who don't deserve it. I want you to see that God gives grace to those who don't deserve it. I want to put forward that what we're seeing in Genesis 25 with Jacob and Esau is this idea that God is choosing Jacob, not because of how special and awesome he will become, but he is choosing Jacob because of how gracious God is. It wasn't based on Jacob's performance. It wasn't based on his potential. He wasn't the tallest one. He wasn't the first one that was going to be picked in the kickball line. It was simply because God is gracious. I think that shows us something about how his grace has come into our lives. I want you to think about something with me. If you and I were to go out to lunch today and I was to ask you the question, how did you become a Christian? What would your answer to that be? Don't shout it out. It'd be a little confusing. I want you to think about that. If we're just talking about how did you become a Christian, what what are you going to say to me about that? See, I want to present the idea that as we start to think back on it, what we're going to realize is God had his sight set on you long before you ever were looking for him. That God had his sights fully set on you long before you woke up with a spiritual epiphany and thought, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go to church. So I think about my own life for a minute. I was in middle to late high school years. The idea of following Jesus was absolutely nowhere on the radar for me. And One day, this girl comes stumbling into my life, and she started inviting me to church with her. And so for a long time, she would perceive and just keep asking me and asking me and asking me. She was very persistent, and and and, and eventually I got to the point where I was like, you know, if I can just get her to be quiet, I'll go with her. So I go to church reluctantly at best, and I just go for a bit, and we just go and we go, well, one day, for some reason, like, what these guys were talking about, what I had no interest in, was actually starting to become really intriguing to me. Like this Jesus that they were talking about, who I didn't know anything about, didn't really care about, for some reason or another, like all of a sudden I began to get attracted to what he had done for me. I'm sitting there thinking, like, if that's true, man, I want that in my life. Like, if that's true, I need that. And one day I decided that, man, I need to put my faith, my hope, my trust in Christ alone, and God saved me. And I think back on that story, and I think, man, what if that girl never walked into my life? I have no idea where she is to this day. But I thank God that he used her to get to me. And I think about it this way. That was no mere coincidence. She didn't just happen to waltz into my life for, for no apparent reason. I want to put forward that God had his sight set on me long before it was ever set on him. So what is that story for you? Because I would guarantee if you can think back on it, God, however you came to faith, that God had his clear path set on you long before you started looking. And for some of you, man, maybe that story is like being actualized right now, right? Like maybe you somehow found your way to church this morning. You're that, you're you're me in the story. And you're like, man, they just offered me free lunch. So I said I would go. Well, watch out because maybe God is about to take hold of your life. So that's good news. 
But I, I would say that for all of us, we can look back and see that being true about us. I want you to listen to what Paul says about the grace of God in the story of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9. Look at what Paul's commentary is on this text. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, listen to this, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. What does that mean? I want to put forward to you that the grace that comes to us is grace that is completely unearned. That you did absolutely nothing to earn it. In fact, every single one of us in the room actually finds ourselves in an interesting place when we're born into the world. We are all unworthy because we have all rebelled against God. But God in his love and kindness for you and for me has decided that he was going to lavish us with grace. He was going to pour his grace out to us. And according to Romans 9, it has nothing to do with you achieving it. But it's the fact that God has decided that in his great mercy and in his great love, he is going to pour out his grace freely to those who could never, ever deserve it. And that is how you and I have been saved. We have been saved because God came and he found us. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned all to our own way. That we weren't looking for him. We were off doing our own thing, but yet God intervened into the story and he said, no, 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 I'm going to save you. I'm going to pull you from death to life. I'm going to raise you from the dead. And I'm going to change your life forever. And that's the grace that has been given to us. And so I think our only proper response to that has to be a ton of humility. Because there's no room for kind of walking with a swagger at this point. Rather, none of us can walk in the room today and say, man, uh, I am awesome, God loves me because I'm awesome, and look at all of my spiritual resume and everything I've accomplished for him. No, man, we come as poor beggars saying, if it's not for his grace alone, I have absolutely no hope. If he doesn't pour grace out to me, then I am just a dead man walking, good for nothing. I have no hope. He is the only cornerstone that I could build my faith on. He is my only hope in life and in death. And so at that point, all arrogance goes to death. All swagger walking, all pride, all ego, it all goes to death because we are on an even playing field here today where if you are in Christ, God has given you that grace. You did nothing to earn it. And that's the hope of the gospel this morning. That's the hope of the gospel, that God has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. And so what we do in response is we just give ourselves completely to him. Say, God, you're our king, Lord, master. Take my life, use it for your glory. And we know that we can trust him. Let's close our time and pray together. Father, we thank you for grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We thank you that Your mercy for us is new every day that you never give up on us no matter how much we stumble, no matter how much we fall, no matter how broken we are. God, thank you for being ferociously committed to us when sometimes we're not as committed to you. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would even be drawing people to faith in your son right now. And for those of us in the room that are Christians, God, would you just humble us to our core and help us to see how desperate we are for the grace and mercy of God. Father, we need you. 
Our lives are completely and totally in your hands. We thank you for your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.